Good morning. I'm Teresa. I'm an alcoholic. Um, as Charlie said, uh, we've known each other uh, uh, quite a number of years. We worked together in the intensive care unit. Uh, I was a nurse for 27 years, uh, 21 of them in um, intensive care uh, in Kentucky and the United States. Um, uh, as with many alcoholics, um, I have a history of uh, difficulties in my life. Uh, I was an adopted child. Um, I was adopted by a family who had uh, two grown sons. And um, uh, well, mostly grown. They were 17 and 18 years older than me. Uh, one uh, grew up to be an alcoholic uh, wife beater, as we call them in the United States. Um, the other was a schizophrenic and a pedophile. And um, I was the victim of that um, for about 12 years before he was institutionalized in a, a state facility um, for his schizophrenia and um, I basically left home at 17 um, and never returned this um, you know was not not really believe it or not the worst <laughs> for me in my mind the worst thing that ever happened to me because as I, you know, looked upon it and still do look upon it, um, that was their sin stance for in their life. And I figured I'd do enough sinning on my own and I have, and I'll answer for those things. Um, and they answered for them before God. They have all since passed and um, that's okay. Um, I, um, once I left home, I went through college, uh, you know, which I worked and paid for myself. And, you know, uh, I was a, of above average intelligence, um, which was also a, a, a factor that made it very difficult for my family to know what to do with, because they were not that kind of family. They did not value education or anything like that. So they had no clue what to do with the child who started reading at three. <laughs> and uh, so once I left home, I never returned. And um, um, graduated college at 20, um, married for the first time at 23 uh, to someone who I felt was um, my intellectual uh, match and uh, he was a good man and we wanted a family. Um, sadly, we were unable to have children and I suffered four miscarriages in my first marriage, which was the greatest loss to me. And, uh, and I did not deal with that well, nor did he. Uh, he was a cross-dresser, and his behavior progressed with each loss until by the end of our marriage, um, 
he absolutely wanted nothing to do with me. And uh, ultimately, that ended our marriage. Um, one of our losses was a son. And literally, um, when I lost him at 20 weeks, he left me in the hospital to, um, uh, unfortunately, do the give equivalent of give birth to the child. I had to arrange the funeral and go to the funeral alone. Um, and luckily a dear friend stepped in and took care of all the arrangements and um, stood beside me. And uh, literally to this day goes to the grave of that child um, that I have never been able to return to. Um, that marriage ended in divorce and um, I went on and um, ultimately met my second husband who I am presently married to. Uh, God bless him. I don't know how he's stood through the last months, but he has. Um, I moved to Northern Kentucky and met uh, a very good and kind man who uh, happened to be a rabid Manchester United fan, which leads me to the odd thing that we ended up getting married in Northern Ireland or the North of Ireland. And we actually married in um, Helen's Bay. So I do have a connection with the Irish friends up there. Um, and um, I moved up here, built a new life and began work uh, as a nurse here in Northern Kentucky. And I was the primary breadwinner. Um, my husband is um, almost 12 years older than I am. And um, we even started our marriage under a, a bit of a cloud. Um, he had a significant heart condition, even knowing that when we married, uh, but it um, happily took a turn for the better and was better for a significant number of years with treatment. And uh, we had been very happy and went along. Uh, my drinking did not, I'd never really been a drinker. I mean, until probably 20, 15, my drinking consisted of um, a glass of wine two or three times a week. And then in 2016, our oldest daughter, um, since I had no children and he had four children, um, his oldest daughter, um, I had become very, very close to. She was the only child who, um, only person who ever called me mom and meant it. She and I had become extremely close. Uh, she developed bladder cancer. She was diagnosed the day after Mother's Day on May 9th. Um, the bladder cancer was 
extremely aggressive. By June 28th, she died. It had spread through her entire body in that short a period of time. We had gone out on to see her on June 15th. And at that time, I realized how devastatingly aggressive it was. And she had been estranged from her own mother and not had not even seen her by that time. She had made me her spokesperson. So I had to make the call to her mother to say, if you want to see your child before she dies, you need to get your butt out of here and see her. And I had to sit there in the waiting room on her father's 65th birthday while the doctors sat and explained to my husband and her partner that she was going to die in a matter of days because I knew everything that they were going to say, every word. I knew all the, the horrible things that the diagnosis meant because I had seen the scans. They had shown them to me. And I watched their world crumble. And I walked them through the process of her dying. And I got the family through it. And literally, when she died, I stepped back and I let everyone else take the lead. I stepped to the background as a good stepmother. And let her mother be the, oh, the crying person. And I swallowed my grief and I did what I had to do and let everyone else do their thing. And I paid for her funeral <laughs> and everything. And I came home and I drank a pint of vodka of bourbon afterwards and that's probably the first time I had drunk a pound of bourbon in my life but I grieved I grieved terribly and a year later to the day from her death my husband we found out he was going his heart was beginning to fail again and that he was going to have to have valve replacement. And so we went through that surgery and he had a, an extremely difficult recovery. Um, he um, lost 25 pounds in two weeks. Um, 
it it was it was tough and i i was working all through this period of time and trying to take care of him and um everything but you know we got through it and you know i i was i think i was still grieving her daughter and i was taking care of him but still working still still going and my drinking at that point in time had now gone to probably a glass of wine four or five times a week i hadn't you know up, hadn't gone back to the bourbon other than that one day but the wine had increased and you know a year later fell broke my leg went, had to be off for three months you know just just silly stressful events and no i hadn't been drinking when i fell and broke my leg um yeah but um that was stressful and it seemed you know it was one thing after another and um then then we're getting into um you know just more stress um uh, with we both started having little illnesses um he was hospitalized with um some problems with the uh, kidney stones and and i had um some illness as well that that just wouldn't clear up and we now think that possibly i had had early covid because we had been in the northwest and this was in the late fall of 2019 by that time and uh things started then we entered into covid times and initially our hospital was not the covid hospital but we got all the patients who were super sick uh who had we had designated one hospital for covid and so we got all the heart attacks and the copd years and the overdoses and and people who were so desperately ill and there was no place for them to go cuz one hospital completely was filled with covid patients and then there wasn't enough room for covid patients in that hospital so we started taking them and then we helplessly watched night after night after night and you would walk into work and when we walked in with covid that became the living nightmare we would walk in the door 
and you'd walk past the room and you'd see a patient who wasn't vented on a ventilator the night before and they were on a ventilator and you knew that second they were going to die. And you'd go to the next room and you'd look at them and you'd go, mm, no, they don't look good. They're going to die. They're going to be vented and they're going to die. And then you'd go to the next room or you'd get a patient. And the first thing you do when you get them and you'd look at them. And you just knew. You'd watch them deteriorate under your hands. In minutes, sometimes, or maybe hours. And at first, it was people who were, and I'm 62 years old, just for the record. At first, it was old people. <laughs> and I say that, you know, older than me people, um, 60s, 70s. And then it was people, me people, people my age, 70. 80 or 60, 50s. Then it was people are my stepchildren's age, 40s. Then it was 20s. But I would get a patient and sometimes. I would be in rooms for hours upon end in full isolation gear, which, you know, for the ordinary person, they don't really understand how miserable that experience is um, to be in layers of plastic and, and stuff. But uh, it's, it's kind of a miserable physical experience, but it's a miserable emotional experience, especially when you're a person who's used to being able to touch their patient, to talk to their patient, to be able to have human contact with another person. Um, I started my nursing career in hospice. So my goal as a nurse was always to give comfort to be, to make them know that they were cared for, that they were human, that they mattered, that they weren't just a thing hooked up to a machine. And with what we were doing then, we were just trying to keep an organism alive sometimes. And some of the things that we had to do to them just to try to keep that organism alive was pretty darn horrible. Um, they had no possibility of seeing their loved ones. 
in many cases, I was the last face they ever saw. And they couldn't even really see my face. Sometimes, really all they saw occasionally was tears that would roll down my face. Um, I had patients who were begging me, please don't let me die. And you would say, I'm going to take care of you. I'm going to take care of you. And in your gut, you knew the only thing you were going to take care of was their body once they passed away. I remember one particular evening, I got a gentleman in, a very sweet man. He was from um, originally from Germany and he was quite in extremis, but he could still speak and we were trying to talk and um, he wanted to talk. He wanted someone there who could, I guess, remember him. And he was hoping somehow to get something out that, that I could tell his sons. And I'm trying to keep him calm as I'm doing everything I can for him. And he was talking about, he was from Leverkusen. And we were talking and, and I was talking about football with him. And, uh, you know, ask him if he was a fan of Bayern Leverkusen. And he was so shocked that I was a fan of football. And within, I got him at nine o'clock at night. And I did not leave that room until 3 a.m. When literally the Israeli doctor who we have telemedicine and the wonderful Israeli doctor who doctors, his name is Dr. Sunday, who uh, Dr. Bernstein knows quite well, literally the man had not had a heartbeat for several minutes. And this doctor is still asking me to try one more drug, one more thing, because we desperately wanted that man to, to live. And I have tears going down my face and Dr. Sunday had tears running down his face. And we're trying to console each other. And I finally said, we have to stop. And I walked out 
that night and I went home and I drank an entire fifth of whiskey. Ultimately, the drinking cost me my job. And when it did, well, let me back up. I knew I was in trouble. And I, I literally, I wanted to reach out and talk to Charlie, but I didn't have the courage. So when it was over, I ultimately, I truthfully, I was relieved because then I knew I could start getting help. And I did. Uh, I went to Journey Recovery Center and I um, went through a five-day detox program, uh, which, you know, because I had not been drinking for an extended period of time, that helped. Uh, it had not been years upon years, um, thank God. Um, I, I never went through the big DTs and stuff that I had seen and everything. Um, that helped. I did a three-month um, what we call IOP, which is intensive outpatient therapy. I did that. Um, and it was wonderful. The problem was I fell through the cracks afterwards. I didn't get into a good therapy program afterwards. And I didn't have the right therapist, which is really, really important. And I didn't get into a good AA situation. Uh, and I should have. Uh, I never found a place that I fit. I didn't find a home group. I didn't find a place I felt welcome. So, um, you know, I had the Caduceus group and it was, that was really good, but I needed more and I didn't have more. Uh, so I screwed up um, a couple of times. In October, ultimately, I ended up getting a DUI. So at present, I am sitting here with an ankle monitor on. I am under home incarceration for six days um, for, um, as my uh, legal punishment for that. I have lost my driving privileges for six months and I had to pay a thousand dollar fine. Um, and I have to do, oddly enough, a drug awareness program. Um, it's not an alcohol awareness, it's a drug awareness. I'm not sure why that is, but a drug awareness program. Um, but um, since then, um, I have found um, a really, really good supportive home group. 
Uh, I am attending AA meetings. Well, not this week. I can't leave my home. Uh, I have found a really supportive home group that uh, has embraced me uh, wonderfully um, and given great support. Um, and just been there every step of the way. They spent a lot of time before my court date preparing me uh, to go for the, the trial. And I know that they will be there with open arms as soon as I get this stupid thing off my ankle and be there for me when I go back and help me going forward. And that I think is very, very important. Um, I think I think the way forward is there. I also have an excellent therapist now that I see weekly. I am able to see him through video visit and I was able to visit yesterday. So I think this is um, wonderfully um, important that people know you can, you can royally screw up, but you can go on. And uh, I am presently uh, 115 days sober. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm coming through it now. Um, I don't know if I'm a cautionary tale or a work in progress, but I am getting to where I need to be. And um, I think that's my story, or at least the beginning chapters of the new story. <laughs>